Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. All right, well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I'm Bruce Drugsma. If you haven't met me, I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are glad you are here. I want to thank the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. Um, always, always great to start off a Sunday worshiping our Lord and Savior. And I want to thank Bethany and all of you um, who put in the time, the energy, the effort for our harvest party. Thank you for reaching and loving and caring for our community. We are continuing our series this morning in the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, either a paper form or a digital form, I would encourage you to be there. We're going to be kind of camping out uh, almost entirely there. We're going to go a little bit farther, but we're going to mostly be in chapter 3. So uh, join us there, and we're, we're looking at this series and talking about this we believe as we look at the church in Colossae and we look at the questions that Paul is asking of them, we're looking at this church that, as I've been saying all along, is at a crossroads. They have a choice. As they watch the world around them change, they have a choice. Do we follow the world or do we follow Christ? And we're asking ourselves kind of the same question. What are we gonna do as we watch the world change around us? Are we going to follow the world? Are we going to follow Christ? And, and that's where we want to, to sit. And that's the question that we want to be asking ourselves. And, but there are some times where it's not quite so binary, where there's not quite a clear this way or that way. And we, we all know that. We all experience that. If I were to come up uh, to you or come to your house sometime for dinner and you were to say, hey, Bruce, do you like pizza? Sometimes that's a yes or no question. Sometimes it's a little more complicated. Well, you know, uh, I'll eat pizza if, as long as it has pepperoni on it, or maybe I don't like uh, mushrooms on my pizza. Sometimes there's another option. It's a little more complicated. But other times it's not, and there's this yes or this no, and times that we feel like we're making a choice when in reality we're not making a choice, or we think we have the freedom to not choose, and by not choosing we're still making a choice. And an example of that that I could give you is imagine that you, um, and for some of you this is an imagine, for some of you it's not, but imagine that you have a job that you're not super thrilled with. You have this job and sure it pays the bills and you know um, occupies your time or whatever else you're looking for in employment, but you're not super thrilled with the work. It's got a little bit uh, to be desired. Maybe your manager or your boss is not the kind of person you'd hoped they would be. And it can seem very binary, stay or go. Do I stay or do I go? And, and yet we can find ourselves kind of in this perpetual motion where we just kind of sit and we think, well, I'm not going to really decide if I'm going to stay or I'm going to go. But in not deciding, what are you doing? You're, you're staying and you're just kind of riding it out. And, and, and we can sit there sometimes and think, well, I'm just not going to choose and, and I'm just going to sit here on the fence. And oftentimes not choosing is, is ultimately one of the choices we make, that we find ourselves by default falling into the same thing because we are creatures of habit. I mean, I don't want anybody to raise their hand necessarily, but who is sitting in the same spot they sit in every Sunday morning in this congregation? We are creatures 
of habit. We tend to do the same thing. And, and that's for a reason. I mean, there's a good reason God designed us that way. Imagine, if you will, that in your life, you had to think about brushing your teeth. You had to sit there and think about, okay, in, out, in, out, up, down, left, right, in, out. We'd be, we'd be hamstrung by the amount of decisions we're constantly making. You know, they talk about some of these uh, people who, who make huge decisions on a regular basis. And one of the things that they start to see is that some of these people wear the same outfit every day, right? Steve Jobs was a famous person who, no matter what the weather was like, no matter what day it was, he wore the same outfit. And his reason was, he goes, I don't want to get decision fatigue. I can only make so many decisions a day. If I have the exact same outfit that I wear every day, it's one less thing to decide on. I just get up, put on my clothes, and I, I don't get decision fatigue because we are creatures of habit. God created us that way, but we also know that bad habits, therefore, can take some energy to overcome. If we have a bad habit, like let's say we have the habit of eating too many snacks after eight o'clock at night, not to pick on anybody in this room specifically, but let's say you have that bad habit like I do, and you want to stop that habit. What's the natural thing is to keep doing it. I don't have to think about getting a snack before bed. I don't have to think about it. I just go and do it. If I want to break that habit, it requires me to put thought energy into something that before didn't take thought energy. And so it's tempting to just keep doing it the same way every time because it takes less energy. But if we want to break a bad habit or we want to start a new habit, it takes some energy. We have to think about it. The first time you brushed your teeth, you had to think about it. You don't anymore. So we have to put that thought energy into these things. And, and in Colossae, they are faced with a choice. And the choice really falls to this, do I keep doing the same thing I've always done because it feels good and it's comfortable? Or is there a reason behind it? And sometimes not choosing is choosing. If I'm not going to think about the options before me, I'm going to continue doing the same thing. And Colossae has that choice. You've always done it this way, Paul is going to say to them. But don't just do it that way because you've always done it this way. You have a choice, but it's going to take some energy for them and it's going to take some energy for us. And I would like us to think about it this morning as two ditches. Because there's two ditches that I think Paul is going to give the Colossians. There's a ditch over here, and there's a ditch over here. And we both, both ditches are things that we have in many areas of our life. You can think about it as a fan, a fan of a sport. Let's say you have a favorite sports team and they're doing really well. It's easy to slide into the ditch of extreme fandom, bandwagon fandom. I can get over-exuberant and I can start like taunting people and, and like rubbing it in people's face when my team does well. And then there's the other ditch. All of a sudden our team starts doing poorly and especially in Minnesota, we fall into despair and despondency and we give up and life isn't worth living anymore. And there's these ditches and both are unhealthy, Right? And so Paul is going to look at them and say, hey, you have two ditches before you. You can fall into this ditch or you can fall into this ditch and avoid both of them. Just like driving a car, avoid the ditches, stay on the road, follow that middle path. And so Paul is going to give them these ditches and he's going to challenge them. And I'm going to challenge us as a church to consider the ditches we as a church and we as individuals have before us. And how do we avoid both ditches. And the first ditch is this in verses 1 through 11. 
Avoid the ditch of earthly things. Avoid the ditch of earthly things because what, uh, we all have that thing that is that constant temptation for us, right? We all have that thing, and, and maybe your thing is the new car. Maybe your thing is the higher GPA or the college of your dreams or the, the promotion or the income that you want. What is that thing that, that we are drawn to naturally, like a moth to a light? What is that thing that tempts us constantly and pulls at us? And it might be a good thing. I don't want to say that getting into a good school or getting a promotion or having financial security, those aren't bad things. But there's a temptation if we focus on them too much. It pulls us in a direction we don't want to go. There's a ditch over there eventually that we can fall into. For me, one of the examples of a way that I have a ditch that I tend to fall into in a way that I avoid that ditch is getting gas, right? I pull up with my car and I go to get gas. If I pay at the pump, I avoid a ditch. And that ditch is called Mountain Dew. If I pay at the pump, I avoid that ditch. If I pay inside, boy, it's like they know I'm coming. The bright lights, the colors, the smells, everything, right? It's tempting. One way I avoid the ditch is I don't go inside the store, And then I drink less Mountain Dew, and my wife is happy with me for drinking less Mountain Dew. Is Mountain Dew bad? No. Are there times where it's appropriate? Yes, but can we we get so lured in that, that our world is like a gas station? It's designed to get me to come in and spend my money. The world wants us to be distracted by these things, the bright, the shiny, And those things can be good, but they can also pull us into a ditch. And and that's where Paul is going to go. Avoid that ditch. Starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips." Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or freed. But Christ is all and is in all. And this is a ditch that I think it's easy for us to fall into. Like I said, I think the world wants us to fall into it. The temptation, the allure of success, of wealth. And a lot of times those things are good things that bring safety and security. The good job brings safety and security. The good income, the good school allows me to get to a spot in life. All of these things aren't bad things, but the allure of them can draw us away. We can sacrifice the great for the sake of the good. We want the good thing and we miss out on the better thing. But, also, but Paul is going to also show us that this ditch contains more than the allure of safety and security. This ditch contains a lot of things that can also harm us. And the list starts with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. 
And I would, I would argue that this ditch seeks to satisfy the things that God put in us that we should desire with cheap substitutes. They're cheap substitutes for these innate desires. Is desiring safety and security a bad thing? No, God has designed us to desire that, but these in the ditch are cheap substitutes. Greed is a cheap substitute for trusting God to provide. Sexual immorality, impurity, and lust are cheap substitutes for the way God designed marriage to be. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life, and any time we satisfy it in anything outside of that, we are falling short and we are substituting a cheap substitute for what God designed. But before we as Christians get all high and mighty on this front, please notice that Paul is directing this at us, not at the world. He's talking about us. We like verse six. We like verse six where it talks about um, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Yeah, we like that, especially when we look out at the world and we see uh, things that, that bother us and challenge us and disturb us and that we don't like. We're like, the wrath of God is coming. But he's talking to us. Verse three, for you died. Verse five, put to death, talking to us, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, And verse 7, you used to walk in these ways. It is directed at us. These are a part of who we are, and we go for the cheap substitute all the time. And the list continues. Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, hey, you used to be like that, but you also have these other things you need to work on. We need to come to this in humility. And acknowledge that we are sinners as well. We are sinners saved by grace and that, that we didn't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of our good lifestyle, because we pursued the good and the right over the shallow and the, the cheap. We came to Christ because of his grace. And therefore, we need to hold open the door for other people who struggle in those same areas. Even if their struggle does not look like ours. And we like to list the sins of the world out there, but remember we come in humility that God's standard is high and we all have fallen short. And he goes on with the list. And these are all cheap substitutes. We must rid ourselves of anger and rage, which is the cheap substitute of justice. We must rid ourselves of malice and slander, the cheap substitutes of reconciliation. And we must rid ourselves of filthy language, the cheap substitute of intentionality and care. We are called to something higher. We are called to God's standard. And the ditch of earthly things is tempting because it's cheap and it's easy. And we need to avoid that ditch. We need to go, where, God, am I giving in to cheap substitutes when you have called me to something higher? Where have we as a church been called to something higher that is going to require intentionality and reconciliation and care and effort? And instead, we're, we're getting sucked into the big and the flashy. Where have we as individuals given in to something that God goes, I have so much better for you, and you keep playing in the mud? Where are the spots where we need to acknowledge and confess that we have fallen into this ditch? And where do we need to, in humility, look at our world around us and see people not as them and the other and the wrong, but as people who are stuck in their sins just like we were? The ditch of earthly things our first ditch to avoid. But our second ditch is on the other side of the road. Avoid the ditch of heavenly escapism. There's always two ditches, right? There's always one on this side and there's always one on that side. 
And if we're not falling into one, it seems we can be falling into the other. And this is one that I think we can feel ourselves skidding out of control into one and overcompensate. And imagine, it's, it's interesting because in Minnesota, we just had one of our first snowfalls of the year and, and it's like everybody forgot how to drive for a couple of days. Because we spend all summer driving on dry, clean roads and the first snowfall comes and people lose their minds. But really, it's just that we've forgotten how to handle slippery roads. And we overcompensate when we all do it. The first time you're in a car and it starts to lose control, you yank the wheel the other way. And we can do the same thing spiritually. And I think that's what Paul is going to warn the Colossians about. And I think that's a warning to us as well. We find ourselves sliding into this ditch and we overcompensate into the other one. We overcompensate into the hyper-spirituality, into the heavenly escapism. That this world doesn't matter. That the only thing that matters is my relationship with God. And this world is going to burn. So it doesn't matter anymore. And that's the other ditch. Because now we don't care about our community and the people around us that are far from God because we're over here in the other ditch. And I've heard it said by many people before that that person, talking about somebody in this ditch, that person is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. And we can get so focused on our theology and on our personal right standing with God that we can forget that we are called to minister to our, to our neighbors and our friends and our family members who are not walking with the Lord. The ditch of heavenly escapism. And Paul gets at it this way, in verse, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And this ditch can look vastly different for different people. We can fall into this ditch, and for one person, it looks like this heavenly escapism, that nothing in this world matters anymore, and all I'm going to do is focus on my relationship with God, and all I'm going to focus on is someday when I get to heaven. And that's what it looks like for one person. But for the other person, this ditch can look like self-righteousness. Right? This idea that I have it all figured out, and since I have it figured out, shame on you for not having it figured out yet. Shame on you for not being where I am. Ignore the fact that I used to be where you were, as Paul reminds us. Shame on you for not being where I'm at. And both are the same ditch, this ditch of heavenly escapism, this idea that we've fallen in to this idea. And, and what's interesting is I was reading a book this week, and, and in it the author talks about this very idea, is that he, he's a counselor and the, and the couple will come in for marriage counseling because there's, there's something going on in their marriage. And they'll come in and, and in his counseling, it tends to be in the area of sexual sin. And so they'll come in for marriage counseling and generally there's one party that has, has caused the problem, primarily. It's never, or it's rarely one-sided, but but it's primarily on this one person. This one person will come in acknowledging they have a problem, looking for help, and the counselor will start working with the couple. And then that person who's, who's been struggling in this area and acknowledges they have a sin issue that's driving a wedge in their marriage will work on that sin issue. And the, and the author, the counselor, talks about it. He goes, and ultimately what happens is they start to have victory in that area. They start to recover. They start to, to 
to get that thing under control, whatever it is. And now all of a sudden, any problem in their marriage isn't their fault, it's their spouse's. Because they only had one problem. And they've dealt with that. So now every other problem is their fault. And that doesn't just happen in marriage. We have a sin issue in our life that we've been struggling with for years, and we finally find some victory in it, and all of a sudden we see ourselves as perfect. That's the only problem I had. And yet if we listen to the Holy Spirit, generally there's something else that he's waiting for us to get to a spot to be ready to work on. And we like to look at the other person and go, you haven't found victory in that area? (laughs) Clearly you're not as good as me. And we have no idea what journey God has taken them through and what issues they've had to deal with. And, And I like to use the analogy of imagine that you're an emergency room doctor. Right? You're an emergency room doctor and, and, a, and a, a person is wheeled in to the operating room. And they're looking for you to save this person's life. And you look at that person and, and you, the first thing you notice is their arm has, has needle marks up and down it. Clearly they're addicted to, to some opioid that they're injecting. But then you notice that there's blood gushing from the neck. Which one are you dealing with first? Any good ER doctor is going to deal with the neck first. That's the wound that's about to kill them. And remember, we aren't the ER doctor. The Holy Spirit is. He is working in that person's life. We are not. And so oftentimes, we can look at somebody else and we see the the needle marks in the arm and go, God, why aren't you dealing with that? Why aren't they dealing with it? And it's for us to remember that the Holy Spirit knows the thing that's going to ultimately kill their relationship with God first. And in his wisdom as God, he is dealing with that in his time. And he might be ignoring this for now. And shame on us for assuming that we know better. That person needs to fix that in their life first. Shame on us. It's up to God to decide. And we sit there in our self-righteousness in the ditch of heavenly escapism thinking that we know best. And this is where Paul starts for us. Look at the posture he is calling us toward. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Does our stance toward those around us look like this? If not, beware. Beware that you have fallen into the ditch of self-righteousness. But there is another aspect to this ditch. Starting in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this passage is a picture of our right belief coupled with right action. If we have a healthy view of God, which affects how we live and worship, it should lead to an outflow of healthy life. That that acknowledging our sin before God, that we were broken in need of grace, should allow us better to acknowledge that other people need that same thing. And we as evangelical Christians, the other danger in this ditch, have a long history of holding high to our theology, and we should. We should celebrate that, that we hold high our beliefs. That's why we titled this series, This We Believe. What we believe is important. But we can fall into the ditch of thinking that that's what saved us. And you and I, we weren't saved by having the correct doctrinal statement. We were saved by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can get so focused on, yeah, but do you agree on this little nuance of theology with me or not? 
instead of, as it says, being thankful, being one body called to peace, letting the message of Christ dwell among you. And yes, we do encourage each other. It says in here, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, with gratitude. What is our posture? When we talk about our our belief and we start to get to these other things, these secondary things, not about who God is and how we come to know him, but secondary things, what is our posture? Is our our posture one of gratitude and and admonishing and teaching one another, or is our our posture of self-righteousness and judgment? Beware the ditch of heavenly escapism. Where have you over-elevated yourself, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought? Where do you see others who sin in ways that you don't sin and think, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person? Or where have we over-elevated right beliefs and doctrine at the sake of our relationship with God? If we are struggling in those areas, we should perhaps consider that we have fallen into the ditch of heavenly escapism, thinking that it's our right belief is the only thing that matters. And we are called to reach those around us who are hurting and broken and trusting the Holy Spirit to work in them. So where should we look? If we can't look in this ditch, we can't look in that ditch, where should we look? And it's the same way. If, I, if, if you're driving a car and you focus entirely on the right ditch because you're so afraid you're going to fall into the right ditch, what are you going to naturally do? You're going to start pulling away from the right ditch. And if you keep focus over there, eventually you'll tip into this one. That's why we don't drive by looking at the ditches. Where do we look? Well, Paul gave us in the very first verse our solution. The middle road. Back in verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Keep your focus on Christ. And while Paul set that for us at the very beginning, focus on Christ, not on the ditches, he then gave us the explanation. Here's the ditch over here, watch out. And here's the ditch over here, watch out. And now he's going to come back and say, what does it look like to keep our eyes on Christ? What does it mean to keep our focus on the middle road? And I, I want to caution us as we go into this next session, Section, this is a section that has been used a lot and where people have taken one verse or two verses out of it and held them up. And that's not the context we see here. Because this is the outflow section. If we're not in this ditch and we're not in that ditch and our eyes are focused on Christ, this is what our life should look like. It's not a prescription for how you find God It's a prescription for what your life should look like. This is what faith in action looks like. Paul has shown us if we focus on Christ, we avoid the ditch of the earthly desires and the ditch of heavenly escapism. But now he's going to give us a picture of what it looks like to live our lives with a Christ-centric focus, but it's too easy to read this section and think it's a prescription. Starting in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Is the Lord Christ you are serving? Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. 
Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And I think this passage makes the most sense in that context. That that he is calling us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. And he gives us this list. And it's not about follow these rules and these words. As N.T. Wright, the famous theologian, puts it, putting the life of the new age into practice begins at home. If a sense of anticlimax is felt on moving from the sublime picture of the worshiping church to the almost mundane instructions here, that is perhaps a sign that we have not fully integrated belief and practice. In other words, what he's saying is that if this feels like it's just a bunch of more rules to follow, maybe we have fallen short of what Paul was getting at that we have to integrate our belief and our action. And if we don't, and we think this is just another set of rules, it quickly becomes legalism again. And this is a passage that people have taken verses out of and and taken them as prescriptions to great harm to other people. And Paul is addressing a very specific cultural context that we need to hold. And, and, And we have to do it for all of them. We can't say, well, this one I like, and this one I like, and that one's weird, so I'm gonna say that's a cultural context one and ignore it. We have to go, what is the lens that allows us to see this whole thing for what God is calling us to? And real quick, before we get into it, since we're going to talk about marriage here, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. One, if you are not married and you are in this church, we are glad you are here. There is space here for you as well. And you can still pull lessons from these passages about marriage, right? Or if you're a person, maybe you're looking toward marriage, learn from these passages, but also look at what God is calling. He's calling about the integration of life and faith. For those of you in our congregation who are married or engaged or dating, I do want to quickly throw out that we do have a opportunity right now in the month of November to do a couple survey that the church has bought an access code that allows you as a couple to sit down and do this survey together and have a 17-page packet of a, a ability to walk through and talk about areas where your, your marriage is doing well or your dating relationship is doing well and areas where it might be struggling that you can work on together. If you want information on that, there are sheets in the back and you can take one as you leave. But I would encourage you, we, we want to develop healthy relationships and marriage relationships and dating relationships we want to pour into as well. And so we as a church have, have purchased that for you and I would encourage you to take one. But back to Colossians. This is a section that throughout church history, some have grabbed and abused. But Paul is addressing here the Christian household. And and he's looking specifically at all the different roles that existed in their Christian household at the time. And understand that he's upending the social norms of the time. He is turning it head over heels. And he's saying, when you're in Christ, it looks different than it does in the world. And this was a common thing that, that, that philosophers at the time would do. They liked to create these household rules. This is how you should run your household. This is how you should do it. And so Paul is using that cultural form of communication to communicate something different. That this is faith in action. And this is how it should affect your everyday life. So this list is not exhaustive, right? So Paul starts uh, that, that the first thing he says... Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But that's not the only thing wives are called to do. Our, our, our thing for, is not to look at our wives as husbands and say, well, submit, that's, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says a whole lot. 
And here what Paul is getting at is he's saying it's not a word to be a doormat. He's, he's elevating the role of women and saying you have a role as believers in the household, but there's still an idea that you are part of the, the marriage relationship and there is still authority in there. But it doesn't mean you're a doormat. He is balancing carefully the duties and responsibilities of the various family members so that the stronger parties have duties as well as rights. And those who are in a position of submission are treated as responsible human beings with rights as well as duties. He's balancing both. In that day and age, there was no need to tell wives to submit. They didn't have any rights. So why is he telling them to submit if he hasn't also elevated them to having a voice? He's addressing what's going on there. And, it, and we see that in how he addresses husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Is that the only thing we should do as husbands? No, that'd be ridiculous. There's a lot more that we are called to in a marriage than love and submission. Those are two things that Paul is addressing here, but they're not the only two things. Again, he's looking at the marriage. If you have integrated your faith and your life well, these are the things that it should look like, love and submission, working together, seeing the other person as an image bearer of God. And we see that that narrative is going to continue as he goes into different roles in the household. And now he's going to move into other roles that had no power and no authority. We see this clearly as we move on. Beyond the marriage, Paul moves into the household. Children and slaves. And notice that Paul treats children as members of the church, as believers in their own right. Children need discipline, yes, verse 20, but so do the parents, verse 21. That's a new idea for them. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Is a new idea for them when in that time the, the, the father of the household had unlimited power and authority. To be told, you can't just do whatever you want, but you must love them. Is a novel idea. And there's again a careful balancing to see your children, parents, as image bearers of God, not as people that we get to boss around. And finally, we get to slaves. And again, any of these preceding verses taken out of context and taken as a prescription for all situations causes this section to be misunderstood, and this is the section that gets abused. For a long time in American history, this verse was taken as one that said, see, Paul says it's okay. Paul says it's okay to have slaves. And that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's addressing the household of the time and he's saying, hey, there are some problems in how you treat each other, but if you integrate your faith and your life well, this area should be affected. And slaves at the time were common and they were part of the church. In fact, in this context, we know there was at least one slave in the room when this was read. And that was Onesimus. And we read his story in Philemon that Philemon had this slave named Onesimus who ran away and ran to Paul. And while he was with Paul, he came to the Lord, and now Onesimus is being sent back to the church, back to his owner, who has every right to kill him by the laws of the land. And he's standing before him, and if you read Paul's letter in Philemon, he has some pretty curt things to say to Philemon about how he should treat Onesimus. And it centers entirely on how he sees him as a creature of God. He is a believer, Philemon. Treat him as a believer. And that's where Paul gets into this here. And he says, 
God shows no favoritism. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And that is the call for all of us, no matter where we are, no matter what role we have. There are times where it feels like we have no power and no authority and we are called to live for Christ. But that calls also to us when we have the power and the authority to live as people who are living for Christ. And so Paul and Philemon will argue subtly that since Philemon owes Paul a debt for his own salvation, he can repay it by releasing Onesimus' debt as a runaway. In other words, a life for a life, Paul says to him. You owe me your very life. And Paul makes an impassioned plea to see Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And while he stops short of saying, therefore, release him, it is definitely implied that if you are living Philemon as a believer and you see another believer, you are equal in Christ's eyes. How can you look at him and say he is property when he carries the image of God? And Paul, who is currently in bondage, not as a slave, but as a prisoner, will tell Philemon to welcome Onesimus as he would welcome me, somebody else in bondage. So Paul argues that children are not property and deserve standing as people in the church and will significantly move on to slaves, not because slaves are like children in need of our control, as some have used this passage in our country, but to argue that as Christians we should see all of those in our household as image bearers of God. And then he, he goes on again. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so where are we treating those around us that we see as less than? Where are we using the power and authority and position that we have, even in our own minds as believers, to say, you don't get God's grace. You are less than. Where are we abusing the position as followers of Jesus that we have been given where we don't see others out in the world as image bearers of God? Who are the people that in our society are looked down on that we also look down on instead of seeing them as God's beloved creatures? There is no favoritism. And for us, the implication today should be clear. If we are avoiding the ditch of secular indulgence and avoiding the ditch of heavenly escapism by keeping to the middle road of following Christ, it should impact every aspect of our life. We should remember easily our debt to Christ and be quick to overlook the debts of others, our coworkers, our classmates, those in the world around us, teachers and supervisors at work, spouses and parents, children, and on and on and on. And we could sum up this whole section the way Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are called to bring God's kingdom here and now, not just escape to it eventually. We are called to be so focused on Christ that it impacts every aspect of our life and changes the world around us. That is our call. So let's do that. Let's go out and bring Christ to our community in such a way that it deeply impacts who we are and deeply impacts the world around us. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for your message this morning, God, the call for us to let you and our relationship with you so permeate us, God, that it influences and impacts every relationship we have. God, help us to keep so focused on you that we avoid falling into the ditch of the temptations of this world, but God, also help us to avoid falling into the ditch of thinking we have life figured out. God, give us the humility to be listeners to the world around us, to hear where they hurt, and to reach them with the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. And we're going to move into now a time of communion. And I think I'm going to ask, uh, as we do that, I'm going to ask those that are serving communion to start making their way forward here so we can do that. And as we talk about communion, I can think of no better way, no better system to keep our eyes focused on Christ than to partake in communion. Because it is in communion that we remember that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When we come before Jesus, we don't come before Jesus where he looks at our resume or our theological standing. We come as sinners saved by grace, just like everybody else. And so as we focus on what Jesus Christ has done for us as believers, we remember that we stand on level ground with other believers. And so we're going to move into that time of communion. And just a couple of reminders, if you have not taken communion with us before, we do with that view that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, we do say that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is welcome to partake in communion with us. If, however, you have not made that decision to put your, give your life to Christ, or maybe this morning you just feel you're not in a spot where you're ready to take communion, that's fine. Please let the elements pass, and we will not judge you for that. But if you are a believer, you are welcome to partake with us, and then please hold to the elements, hold on to the elements, and we will partake them together at the end. First Corinthians chapter 11, we read this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take it together. And Lord, as we take communion together, God, we remember the sacrifice you made on our behalf. God, and we thank you that it is not by our own works, God, that we come to know you, but it is entirely by your grace. And so, Lord, we come to you with gratefulness, God, that you have made a way. God, you have made a, a way for us to be brought back into relationship with you. We thank you in your name. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take it together. Over the last several months, as we've ended communion, we've ended with the Lord's Prayer. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. As we've been going through this series, we've been looking at some of the common church creeds that unify us with other believers. And so as we end communion this morning, we're going to end it by, instead of saying the Lord's Prayer together, saying uh, together the Nicene Creed.
We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from under the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. A couple of quick things before we leave. Uh, First of all, if you... Read the Nicene Creed with us. Thank you. You may have noticed that I screwed up, and I just want to own that. I said, born under the Virgin Mary. I mixed up born under and suffered under Pontius Pilate. I was not trying to add a word to the creed, so if you notice that, I just want to be really clear. That was a mistake on my part. I don't think he was born under the Virgin Mary. A um, couple of uh, quick announcements before we leave, and these are opportunities for us as a church, like we did with the Harvest Party, to reach our community. I want to highlight a couple of them that we have coming as ways that we can continue to put our faith in action. Uh, The first one being uh, our missions team is asking for some people to help uh, provide resources for and help serve a meal for Love, Inc. Love, Inc. is a missions partner with us uh, that has a fresh start program that helps people who are stuck in a loop of need, uh, helps them step out of that and get resource to move, to move out. So they're looking for some help. Uh, that information is near the missions wall where you can go and find, find that Um, Also, we have an opportunity for you women in the church to get together, uh, to spend some time to, as our passage said, to lift each other up and encourage one another. Uh, I don't know if there will be songs or hymns or songs, but you do have that opportunity to lift each other up at that anchored event um, where Brenda is going to be sharing on November 11th. So I'd encourage you to put that on your calendar. And lastly, we've mentioned Tony as our missionary of the week and the Thompsons. Tony is going to be here on a Friday um, at two o'clock for a fireside chat to kind of give an update on where he is and what is changing in that. I would encourage you to be a part of that. Last thing before I read our benediction, uh, as with um, every other communion Sunday, this is the Sunday where we do take our benevolence offering and that box is in the back. Um, Please give generously. We as a church need your giving, and our community uh, is the one who benefits most from your benevolence giving. From Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.
Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.